Please be seated, and, and as you are this evening, I invite you to turn with me to John's Gospel in chapter 3. John chapter 3. For some time as a congregation, we've been working through the life of Christ, uh, working chronologically through all four of the Gospels. Uh, And tonight, we come to what really is Um, Undoubtedly, not only the most well-known text uh, uttered by Christ in the New Testament, but is certainly the most well-known text in all of Scripture. But friend, before I read the text before us this evening, I'd like to remind you that there is a real distinction between familiarity and a deep knowledge of any text of Scripture. Uh, A theologian, 19th century theologian, Benjamin Breckeridge Warfield, He put it this way, that it's the Christian's great privilege to have so much familiarity with the sacred truths of Scripture. But it's also for that Christian to remember that familiarity is never to breed contempt. The truth of the matter is, friend, you and I, as we approach this text, uh, we are to remember that this is the word of our God. We're to treat it reverently. And we're to see here that there is a deep, that you and I could never fathom. A deep fear that even the just men who have been made perfect after death, they still, after everlasting years, will not approach the foothills of the richness found here. May we hear the text in this way as we hear it now. John chapter 3, and we'll commence our reading there at verse 13. No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, that the world through him might be saved. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word. And may he bless us richly under it this evening. Well, friend, I won't review at any great length what we've seen this morning as we've continued in this dialogue between Christ and Nicodemus, but, but I would like to make something of an opening observation. In the course of those preceding verses, you'll notice that then Nicodemus really gets something more than he perhaps expected. Really, the third verse, you expect that Nicodemus approached Christ. He approached him with this earnest desire, perhaps, to know more about Christ. But really, from verses 4 to 12 in chapter 3, Nicodemus doesn't learn so much about the work and the person of Christ as he does about Nicodemus' own need and how that need could be filled by the Spirit of God. In other words, Nicodemus learns more about himself at the beginning. And then in the text that we took up this morning, starting at verse 13, Christ turns back, turns back to the idea of his own identity. Who is Christ? What is the work set to his hand? It's important to keep that in front of you 
this evening as we approach our text. You see, in those verses, we'll find that Christ tells us much about his person and his work. Gives, finally, something to Nicodemus that perhaps he wanted from the beginning. But he also gives him so much more, as we'll see it in this 16th verse. Our text reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. This is explanatory. Uh, I think this is perhaps often missed. The for there, of course, is not added. It's important. The for there is telling us why the Son of Man was sent. Why, of course, he would be lifted up that all men might believe, that all men might be saved who believe. This is the cause why Christ came. For God so loved the world. And then we're told that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And friend, as you look at that text, you notice that there's actually a repetition. At the the 15th verse, really in substance, we find the same thing. We find there that God has already said that by looking to this Son, those who believe would indeed be saved. But as we look at this text, friend, familiar as as it certainly is to us, I want to ask a question about emphasis. What does the text, what do these lines that we've just read, what do they emphasize? You and I, when we come to a familiar text of Scripture, so often import our own emphases. So it's important to ask in this juncture, what is it that Christ here is emphasizing? What is unique to this text? I want you to hold that question in front of you this evening, friend, because I think if we do so, I think this text will perhaps be open to us in a way that that it's not for many. The text is teaching us a simple doctrine. It is that that in Christ, the love of God is made conspicuous. And that is our theme this evening, that in Christ, the love of God is made conspicuous. But I want us to see that under three headings. I want us to see that, first of all, as as how the verse explains to us the origin of that love. Then, to see something of its objects, and finally, its operation. So take, first of all, the origin of this love. It's given to us plainly, for God so loved. One of the striking things about this text is that this is the first time in the dialogue that the love of God is mentioned. Nicodemus, at verse 3, says that Christ was a teacher sent from God. And of course, the Lord Jesus explains to Nicodemus what it is to be born from above. But it's not until we get to the 16th verse that the love of God is expressly mentioned. And what does that tell us? What is it that Christ is saying here about the love of God? Well, friend, he's telling Nicodemus why he was sent from above. He's telling Nicodemus why he came. Again, in verses 13 and 14, you have something of the person, that is, the identity and the work of Christ. But now here we have the sending cause of Christ. And staggeringly, beloved, the answer to that question, why Christ came, is the free love of God. Redemption, then, is an effect of divine love. That's what this text teaches. But friend, I want you to notice 
I want you to notice how profound that really is. I want you to notice that here, it's not the other way around. Christ is saying here that that the Son of God was not sent so that God would love His people. That's not the case at all. Redemption is an effect, not the cause of love in this text. I think that's something that is often missed. And friend, it's something though that that pervades the Scriptures. I want you to remember just for a moment, whenever Christ is, is speaking to His disciples, that final night of His public ministry, You remember that from chapter 13 to chapter 17 of John's Gospel, there are so many things that Christ promises His people. So many things that He tells us about what He will do in His ascension. What Christ, our incarnate Redeemer, is doing now. But there's something in John 16 that Christ says He will not pray to them for. It's striking because, of course, in the list that goes before, He tells them time and time again what He will be doing. In one instance, he says he will not pray to God for something. He says, I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you. I will not pray to the Father that he would love you. And then he tells us why. For the Father himself loveth you. Friend, the mediation of Christ The work of redemption was not so that God would love men. But this text plainly teaches that the work of redemption was the effect of that divine love. And so Christ says to his people, he says, I do not need to pray that the Father would love you. That's not part of the remit of my mediatorial work because it was for that very love that I was sent. That was, to speak reverently, the impelling cause. Friend, if you meditate on that for any length of time, that's a staggering thing. Because here we're told that God loved the unlovely. And out of that love, He would redeem them through His Son. This is understood, I think, pretty simply, isn't it? Friend, the recipient of a gift is not loved because they receive the gift. The recipient is given a gift because of a love that was already there. And that's precisely what Jesus is saying to us in this text. His people were given Christ because they were already loved. What's staggering, friend, is is in this text, really in John's Gospel, we have the first uh, discourse from Christ's own lips about the love of God. And, And that fulfills for us, as I said to you months ago, what John told us Christ would do. That Christ, who is in the bosom of the Father, would come and would make Him known. Well, here in this text, friend, you find Christ, who is in the bosom of the Father, coming out and staggeringly. His message is one of love. Of prevailing and free love. It's a staggering text, friend. It's, it's right that this text should be so familiar. We shouldn't forget that there's something unfathomable here. Something that you and I will exhaust eternity. Searching. But never exhausting. And so that's the origin. The origin of this love is in God himself. But what of its objects? 
First of all, friend, we encounter here the object being that of the world. And this is staggering if you consider the dialogue itself. You remember that Christ is engaging here within, with a Pharisee. Nicodemus was a leader even in, within the Sanhedrin. But as you look at this text, you'll notice that, that this also is staggering because of the reference that's gone before. There's something of a comparison that one can easily draw between the brazen serpent mentioned in verse 14 and what God, his son, has described as doing here in verse 16. What I mean is, is really simple. The Son of Man, says Christ, will be like the brazen serpent, lifted high, and all those who believe in him will be saved. But you could imagine in Nicodemus' mind for a moment, can't you, that, that yes, well, the brazen serpent certainly was a benefit to Israel. Now Christ says, no, no, the Son of God will benefit far more. The brazen serpent certainly was a benefit to Israel of old. But the Son of God, well, friend, he'll benefit the world. Now, you perhaps are expecting me to do what I'm going to do here. I'm going to ask a question, well, what sense are we to understand the world here? What is the world that's in view? And I want to answer that very briefly this evening. I want to I want to answer, I'm just first of all, by looking at the text itself. I want you to look at how this love of God is described for us. It's a striking thing. It's described as that impelling cause, again, that, that sends the sun. And then at the end, it is that which is really the ground why those who believe in him do not perish and have everlasting life. Now, friend, I want you to notice, just by holding those, those things together for a moment, we're speaking here of an effectual love. This is not a hypothetical, general kind of thing. This is not a love that can be frustrated. This love sends the Son, and we're promised as well that this love indeed is the ground by which men will certainly be saved, those who look to Christ by faith. This is an effectual love. The second thing I want you to notice, friend, is actually from outside of this text. This is the sending love of God. And the question is, to whom do the scriptures say Christ was sent? As we look at Romans 8, again, a very, a very familiar text to most. I want you to notice what the apostle says, because it parallels very well what we have in our text. He says here, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now something that we can miss there in that text is the simple logic that binds those two clauses together. First of all, the apostle has in view that, that the reason why the benefits in the reason why believers enjoy the benefits that they do and may expect further benefits is because they were given Christ. Now, that's a striking thing, friend, because here the apostle does not look at the instrumental cause, namely faith. He doesn't say, these ones can expect greater blessing from God because they believed, though that would be true theologically. No, he grounds the benefits of believers in the fact that they have been given Christ. Christ was sent to them. The logic is quite straightforward. 
Believers receive these benefits because they were given Christ. And the entailment is, if not all receive these benefits, as certainly not all will, then not all, every individual, has been given Christ. For this reason, the Westminster Assembly, Samuel Rutherford put it this way on this very text, that this love that's in view here is an actual saving love and therefore not a general love. It's putting very succinctly what we have in this text. This is not a love that is frustrated. Not a love that is hypothetical. The object here are the nations of those who are described in Revelation 5. Those out of every tribe, tongue, and nation who are saved. Jew and Gentile alike. That's the world. Elect sinners that are the object of this love. But I want to press us far further this evening. Because I want you to notice that in this text... That is not the only object of divine love. I want you to notice, friend, first of all, the point of emphasis. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. As you look at this text, grammatically, these are the only two points of actual emphasis in the syntax. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. A friend, the entailment is quite straightforward as well. But perhaps to illustrate it, let me put it to you this way. Let me redact the text for a moment. For God loved the world that he gave his son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Hearing it that way, friend, I'm I'm sure shows you what the point of the text is. What's so staggering about this text is the fact that the one who was given was, as the apostle describes him in Ephesians 1, the son of the Father's love. Friend, this text emphasizes the fact that the Father loved the Son. And that, that that is the reason why we, we are to stagger at the fact that he gave him for a world of sinners. Friend, what, what you find here is the love of God, the Father toward God the Son. And that it's this that heightens, this that deepens the meaning of this text. This is so often missed. Friend, I, we, we are so, so, so self-centered when we come to a text like this that we miss the fact that what here the Scriptures are teaching to us is that the deep love of God the Father for God the Son, that shows us how deep His redeeming love was for sinners. So I want us to meditate just briefly on this love that the Father has for the Son. I want you to notice, first of all, friend, that this is not like the love that God has for elect sinners. Those ones are loved as an act of benevolence. They are loved, though they are unlovely. Not so the Son. Friend, the infinite God looks at His Son 
the infinite divine Son, and He sees Him altogether lovely, worthy by nature of that love. Friend, you and I know nothing of this kind of beauty. We know it only in shards. We only see pieces of what we're talking about this evening. And again, to all of eternity, we'll never grasp the infinitude that's in view in this text. But, but what here we're being told is the Father loved the Son because He was the Son from all of eternity, altogether lovely. And friend, as you look at this text, you ought to recognize that then no, no analogy really can be drawn. If, if the Father has an infinite love for the Son who is infinitely lovely, then friend, no love that a Father has for His Son comes even close. The most loving Father. Friend, He doesn't come close to the love that the Father bears toward the Son. And yet, says this text, He gave this, the Son of His love, to the unlovely. That's the point of emphasis here, friend. That's the point that that should stagger us. That such a Christ was given. And such a Christ so loved by the Father. Friend, even an earthly father would not give his child even for his dearest friend. What this text is saying is that the father who loves his son infinitely gave him for sinners. If we thought more about the loveliness of Christ, friend, this text would never grow old. If we thought more about the loveliness of Christ, friend, this text would always stagger, would never become stale. But thirdly and finally, as we close, I want us to look at the operation of this love. That's given to us positively and negatively in the final line. That those who believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's both given to us in the negative and positive, certainly to remind us, certainly to drive home that this is a certainty. They will indeed be saved. And friend, what we're told here then is that upon condition of faith, believers really and surely apprehend redemption. They really lay hold of eternal life. Friend, there is then nothing more sure in the world for the believer. Uh, nothing from anyone, that, he could, that any promise he could receive from any other person that is as sure as this text. If they have laid hold of Christ by faith, they will surely not perish, but have everlasting life. But friend, I want us to apply this text briefly this evening. And I want to do so by asking a basic question. And that is, friend, is this text really familiar to us? If if the point of emphasis in this text, as I've argued here, is, is really on the love that the Father bears toward the Son, and then the loveliness of that Son, is this text really familiar to us? 
I would submit that it isn't. We can intone the words. We can emphasize things that we would like out as we have theological needs. But, but if this is the emphasis of the text, the love that the Father bears for the Son, and, and the loveliness of the Son, and how all of this heightens the, the redeeming love of God, well then, friend, I would say to, to you that no, we're not very familiar with this text at all. One Puritan put it that this is the sum and substance of the Gospel. And friend, surely it is because it drives us to think about something that you and I could never fathom. So friend, do you marvel this evening? Do you marvel at the depth here? The second point of application, friend, is related to the offer. And this is so very crucial. In Isaiah 42, Christ is described as given as a covenant for the people, for the Gentiles, for the same world that's in view here in, Genesis, in John 3. But how are we to think of that offer? Well, friend, I want you to know that that whosoever there is a genuine whosoever. It is a genuine whosoever. It's true that the covenant, as it, as it is lodged in heaven... If you like, as the book in heaven is there, the names of all of the elect are written, never to be struck out. But as Ralph Erskine described it, there was a copy of that book made. And that copy was sent to earth in the scriptures. And instead of having the names of the elect there, it has there instead the name whosoever. Erskine writes it this way. He says, this is written in your Bible which is the book of the covenant. Though this be a true copy, agreeing exactly with the original in heaven, yet for rendering all inexcusable, this covenant is directed to all and every one of you. As such, it gives you full and sufficient warrant to sign and subscribe yourselves. For you cannot possibly see your names in the original in heaven till once you have signed your consent by subscription to the copy that is in your hands. Friend, that is what here Christ offers. Not to Nicodemus only in the first century, but he offers it to everyone who falls under the earshot of the proclamation of the gospel. The whosoever is genuine. So, friend, the exhortation here is to sign and to sign at God's command. He has invited you. He commands you to come. And so come. And friend, in the coming, in laying hold of Christ in this way, friend, that deep love of God, which moved him to send the son of his love for sinners, well, friend, that love you'll meditate on from time, for time and for eternity and never exhaust it. Amen.